Um, each week in this series, this teaching series, we're, we're picking one of the, what we're calling frequently asked questions. It could be a question from within the faith, meaning just, you know, believers have honest questions about things, elements of our faith of following Jesus. Or it could be a question from someone who is uh, a seeker or a skeptic or whatever it might be, who's, who's asking it, saying, but this doesn't make sense to me. I can't wrap my mind around this. And so we're picking each one of these, these questions that, that are very relevant for us here in northern Colorado. And, and trying to explore it biblically and say, how can we shed a little bit of light on this? So this evening we're going to be looking at injustice. Uh, take a look at the, the screen, just a quick three-minute video to kind of introduce this topic a little bit, a little bit better. I grew up at actually asked my parents to tell me to leave when I was 16 because I was a bad seed. And every youth group that I went to, the youth pastor or the you know main youth group leader girl would come up to me and and try and pray over me or, or save me or you know like they all just assumed that I didn't love Jesus. When I do talk to people about the fact that I love Jesus, um, they don't they don't see me as a Christian. Christians to them are, you know, some far-off megachurch that, you know, disagrees with homosexuality, is extremely judgmental, hypocritical. They're just, you know, people trying to take your money, and um, they don't see, you know, compassion. They don't see empathy or um, selflessness or, or love, you know, just like all those things are love. They don't see that. They, they see the ugly part, you know. They see the one radical um, that says that God hates fags, you know. That's what they see as Christianity to them. And um, probably one of the the main uh, conversations I get in with people in my daily life, if I choose to talk about Jesus, is is that they get the idea of Jesus and they understand God's love and they think that's awesome, but they uh, don't understand how Christians can act the way that they do. The list of words that people would use to describe Christians in general. You know, Christians are homophobic, they're hypocritical, they're greedy, they're isolated, you know, they close themselves off from reality, Um, they're liars, they're untrustworthy, they're (laughs) self-righteous, they're fake, Christians are fake, Christians are phony, Um, they're disingenuine, they don't actually care about you, They, they have an agenda. Yesterday I went to the Westboro Baptist Church counter-protest and the things that they had written on their signs were just pure hate. Um, and to see people calling themselves Christians with just really vulgar, hateful things written to just show to the world that they are completely comfortable and feel convicted to do so by, by God to go spread this message of hate. I think how it's supposed to be is, you know, how Jesus lived out his life. He was, he was selfless. He gave everything. He was humble. He, uh, he, he hung out with the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the sinners. He had dinner with them. He, Im- he embedded himself in this culture that the rest of the world and the religious people shut off and turned away and tried to keep out of their sight. He just became their friend and came alongside them and said, I understand, you know, that people judge you and that this this idea of religion is is not good anymore 
and I'm, I'm here to love you. I'm here to be your friend and, and to serve you. This is, this is a pretty common question, a common assertion, isn't it? And like we said, it's both from, in this case, this is someone who would say, I'm a follower of Jesus. You know, the, the old, I like Jesus, but I don't like his followers kind of thing. Um, or it could, be, it could be levied from someone who, who was really outside the church. There's been almost a cottage industry of books published in the past few years by, by a group which have kind of tagged, gotten the tagline of the new atheists. And these would, these would be people, who, you know, uh, People like the late Christopher Hitchens, the English thinker who, who, who made, made famous the statement, religion poisons everything. And specifically looking at not just religion but the Christian church, he says, given the fact that the Christian church is, is responsible for so much damage to the history of the world, you look at, you look at the blight that the church, that followers of Jesus have, have had on the history of the world with oppression, um, with marginalization, uh, if, whether it be racial or uh, socioeconomic reasons, that because of that fact alone, we should also reject the beliefs of Christianity. Because if that's the kind of thing that it brings about, what good is it? Why should we even have it here? Now, before, uh, before I go on, I, I want to make just a, a, a couple comments um, about a thought that I kind of wanted to chase down tonight more, but that's one of the biggest challenges here is this, like each week I'm thinking we need five weeks on each topic here. So I just want to say a few comments about this one area here. Um, without justifying any of the atrocities uh, committed by, by those who claimed the name of Jesus, uh, you know, the Crusades or the Spanish, Spanish Inquisition or the uh, Thirty Years' War or the Catholic Protestant uh, fighting that goes on in uh, Northern Ireland, we must be very, very careful about our facts. We have to be extremely careful and precise about our facts. Here's, here's what I mean. Let me give you an example, maybe a little closer to home. Um, maybe the best example of religiously motivated uh, violence here in America is the Salem witch trials. Right? We've, we've seen books about that, or we've read books about it. We've seen movies, stories, and that sort of thing. Um, now, how many people do you suppose were killed in the Salem witch trials? Thousands? Hundreds? It's actually 25. 25 people in the American Salem witch trials <clears throat> died. Uh, 19 of those because they were accused of murder, and then a few died while they were in captivity. Um, let, me, let me read for you uh, a statement that, that was made in uh, Dinesh D'Souza's book, What's So Great About Christianity? Speaking of these, these sorts of events, he says, Yet the witch trials have been memorized, uh, memorialized in books, movies, and plays like Arthur Miller's The Crucible. How wrong though the trials were, they harmed a relatively small number of people, few casualties, big brouhaha, he writes. Um, and as many have pointed out, the, the worst atrocities that have been taken place have been at the hands of atheist groups and governments. In fact, over the past hundred years or so, the most powerful atheist regimes, communist Russia, communist China, and, and Nazi Germany, have wiped out people in astronomical numbers. Just a few of these. Stalin is responsible for 20 million deaths. 
20 million deaths. This is through mass uh, slayings, forced uh, labor camps, these sort of false trials and then firing squads, um, population relocation, starvation. Um, Mao Zedong's regime is responsible for slaughtering 70 million people. Hitler comes in at a distant third with 10 million people, 6 million of those being Jews. Um, now, this, this is not even mentioning the countless slangs of Soviet uh, dictators like Lenin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, and so forth, nor to even mention those that we might even consider kind of minor league offenders or minor league tyrants, Fidel Castro, uh, Kim Jong-il, uh, Pol Pot. As an example, Pol Pot, this is the ruler of the Khmer Rouge, the uh, uh, Communist Party in um, Cambodia. He, he only ruled from, uh, ruled from 1975 to 79, so we're talking four years. And in that period of time, this atheist ruler eliminated one-fifth of the Cambodian population. One-fifth, um, 1. 1.5 to 2 million people. In fact, it's a larger percentage of his people uh, that he killed than Stalin or Mao did of their own people. But, but even just focusing on the big three, okay, if we just say Stalin... Hitler, and Mao, these atheist regimes in a single century, okay, less than 100 years, murdered more than 100 million people, all committed atheist regimes. Speaking of the deaths caused by the Crusades, the Inquisition, the witch burnings, all put together, Dinesh D'Souza writes, these deaths caused by Christians, Christian rulers over a 500-year period amount to only 1% of the deaths caused by Stalin, Hitler, and Mao in the space of a few decades. Now, this is that I, you know, I said we could spend a lot more time on the deals. If you're, if you're kind of like interested in chasing more of this stuff down, I would encourage you to pick up D'Souza's book, What's So Great About Christianity. There's another one by Paul Copan, and the end of it, he talks, he, he's got some uh, writings on this. His, his, his book is, uh, is God a Moral Monster. So there's a lot of good writings out there which, which, Help us, like I said, be careful about the facts. We just have to be careful we don't blow the facts out of proportion. Now, now ha- having said that, despite all this, we cannot dodge the issue. <laughs> we, we can't emerge from this triumphalistically. Okay? There's no way out for us. I don't think there's any way out. But I think if, as we look at the gospel, it, 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 it both knocks the skeptic on, off their feet, but it knocks us to our knees. Okay? We can't be arrogant or triumphalistic about any of this. We have to own the elements of, of our history, but we have to ask the question, is it consistent with this Jesus person? Is it, is it the logical outworkings of what Jesus taught, or is it something else? Is it Jesus plus something else? Because anytime you have Jesus plus, you have something else besides Jesus. So, um, But at least I want us to see that uh, injustice, I would suggest, is a condition of fallen humanity, not biblical Christianity. Okay? And I think that's obvious just by looking at these stats. Injustice in our world, and it's horrible, it should be condemned wherever it is, in the church or out of the church. Injustice is a result of fallen sinful humanity, not biblical Christianity. So let me ask some questions here. We just want to go through a couple of these things. If you have an outline, there's, it's just blank space in there. You can jot down some notes as we go. First question I want to ask is, how can we understand the many character flaws in the average professing Christian? Okay? This is sort of the hypocrisy thing. You know, the, 
okay, you say you follow Jesus, but, you know, there's so many hypocrites in the church, you know, they, meaning you say one thing and you do another. Or you, you might say you believe in this, but, but you, you, you act unjustly. Um, there's, there's discord between your speech and your character. Um, and I would say that there are two Christian doctrines that, that speak to this. The first one is what we call common grace. Um, James 1.7 says this, Every good and perfect gift comes down from above, from the Father of lights. God gives out wisdom and talent and, and beauty and courage and all these good things to humanity, uh, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of re- religious conviction, regardless of culture, regardless of time frame. This is this idea of common grace. All, every time that humanity acts in such a way, God does this in order to help preserve the world, in order to bring beauty to it, in order to bring grandeur to it. There's this common grace that sort of holds back how bad we could be because there's, there, there's this sort of built-in thing to us, baked into us, um, that, that it's this, it's this common, common grace. And then the second one is this idea of sheer grace. Um, Our moral efforts, as good as you might try to be, as good as I might try to be, our moral efforts can never earn, can never merit a relationship with God. Um, Only Jesus' death does that for us. It's a a free gift as we talk about. See, it's, um, it's, it's, it's a mistaken misbelief, but I would suggest that probably the majority of the people who, who just believe generally in God in our world kind of think well if i'm a good person if i clean myself up if i if i engage in you know um, moral um, you know getting better at the mistakes i'm doing and trying to be a kind person then then god will accept me or he might even be obligated to bless me or he you know he will have to keep me healthy he will have to take me to heaven when i die that that sort of thing that is not christianity it's the exact opposite of christianity sheer grace says that Good character, kind of you know, what we naturally have, is, is largely attributed to our families of origin. What kind of home did you grow up in? Um, did, you, did you have a loving, safe, stable family? Did you have a, a social environment conditions that, that, that were, um, where someone was responsible for you? They taught you responsibility. See, many have had very unstable family backgrounds, poor role models, a history of uh, tragedy and, and, and disappointment just litters their past. Well, what kind of result is, does that make in a person? Well, they're oftentimes burdened, deep insecurities, uh, hypersensitivity to a lot of things, a lack of self-confidence. They might struggle with just like uncontrolled anger um, or, or low, low self-worth and value, shyness, struggling with addictions, um, other difficulties result as, w- as well. Imagine this. Imagine you meet two women. Okay, um, one of the one of these women comes from a very very broken past. Um, she becomes a Christian, and her character improves remarkably. Nevertheless, she may still be less secure, less disciplined than than woman number two who is so well-adjusted that she, she, she doesn't even feel any particular compulsion to be involved in any sort of religious affiliation or anything. Unless you knew the starting points of these two women, 
it would be very reasonable to look at them and go, well, Christian, what does Christianity do for the person? Look at them. They're a mess. Look at their life. Look at where they are. They're, you know, they've got all these problems, all these hang-ups, and they say they're a Christian. Look at this person. It's not a Christian. Their relationships are going well, and everything's great. You have to compare, not the two together, you have to compare their redeemed selves or their unredeemed selves. But you can't compare two different people because we just naturally come into this life with, with different uh, beauties, different challenges, different struggles, different things. Um, let me read this statement here by uh, Tim Keller. He writes in his book, The, the Question of God. Um, it is often the case that people who live, people whose lives have been harder and who are lower on the character scale, he says, are more likely to recognize their need for God and turn to Christianity. So we should actually expect that many Christians' lives would not compare well to those of the non-religious. And he ends by saying, just like the health of people in the hospital is comparatively worse than people visiting the museum. (laughs) The church is more like a hospital than it is a museum. So Keller actually says, it might actually be more reasonable to assume that when you walk into a church, that the people who are being attracted to that location, a Christian church who's teaching the gospel, they might be in worse shape than your average just pagan out there living. Because they're rec- they know they're messed up. They know they're broken. They know they have no wherewithal in themselves. Interesting, interesting point. Well, I want to take a look at a passage tonight. If you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 2. Um, I want to look at a text here, which I think gives us a... An example, first century example, of the very thing that we oftentimes run into. There's a public figure. This guy is a very well-known guy. uh, Religious follower of Jesus, leader, loves God, who um, has some pretty significant character flaws. And they're public ones. They're, They're public character flaws. And there's a huge ripple impact even in the community. Um, Galatians chapter 2, let, let me just kind of set the stage for you a little bit here. This is taking place, if you, if you think about the Mediterranean world, um, this is where, you know, here's Jerusalem, this is where uh, the, resurre- the death and resurrection of Christ takes place, his followers are there. Uh, if you've been here on the weekends, we're doing a study in the book of Acts, right, catching the wind, and... Uh, walking through the first few chapters, and all that's taking place in Jerusalem. What we're going to talk about is an event that takes place up in Antioch, far north of there. But here's how they get to Antioch. This is, this is what sort of happened. Um, now, Peter, you, you know, this one who is, he's there on the day of Pentecost. He gets uh, uh, impacted and filled by the Holy Spirit. He stands up, he preaches to the Jewish community, and like thousands of people, thousands, Thousands of Jews become followers of Jesus, and, and he's, he has this powerful, you know, courageous uh, experience now empowered by the Holy Spirit, and he's, he's leading this, this early church in this location. Um, in Acts 11, we see that it says uh, 11. I'll just read this as sort of a preface before we get into the uh, Galatians passage. Acts 11:19 says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed, Stephen is that early follower of Jesus who he stands up for the Jews and he gets stoned and he's killed. Now, what's really interesting, Acts chapter 1, Jesus says, go into all the world, right? You know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. They hadn't done that. They had not obeyed him. And it actually took persecution for Jesus' command to happen. 
kind of an interesting thought. And so because of um, the, the persecution that broke out, uh, Luke tells us after Stephen's death, they, they traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So that's where this is taking place here. Spreading the word only among Jews, it says. Now, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. Greeks are Gentiles and they're non-Jews. Telling them of the good news of the Lord Jesus. And verse 21 says, the Lord's hand was with them. So the, God was in this whole, he was, his goal was to take the Jew, Jewish followers of Jesus and non-Jewish or Gentile followers of Jesus and say, it's one people. Jesus called him his bride. I have one bride. I'm not a polygamist. I don't have many wives. I've got one and you're it. And it's going to be one people here. The Lord's hand was with him. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. So that's the context. That's the setting. And it's in that then that this setting right here, this church in Antioch, it's a mixture of Jewish followers of Jesus and these non-Greek, whatever they might be, followers of Jesus. Um, Peter's had an experience earlier in the book of Acts where uh, he has this vision from God where he's told to to eat unclean food, meaning non-kosher foods. And he goes, no, 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 I'd never do that. I'd never. And he says, no, no, what I've, God says, what I've called clean, you don't call unclean. Which is a, a direct inference also saying Gentiles are clean too. You can, you can do life with them. And one of the biggest pictures, ways of doing that, is you have meals with them. You eat the same food they eat, they eat the same food you eat. And that's, that's sort of this beautiful picture of this one people of God. Okay? So Galatians 2.11. We read this. And this is, this is from Paul's perspective here. Paul says, when Cephas, that means Peter, that's his other name. When, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back. Draw back the verb there in Greek commentators tell you that it's in the imperfect tense, meaning it happened like slowly. It was this slow erosion of him kind of like, uh, kind of pulling back a little bit. And separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. Meaning the Jews who said, oh yeah, you can follow Jesus, you just have to become a Jew first. You want to you go through the door of Jesus first, you've got to go through this you know, door of Judaism. Then you can get to Jesus. You have to be circumcised. You have to hold to the dietary laws. You have to do this. And the apostles' whole point was, no, 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 anyone and everyone can come to it. It's not a cultural thing. You don't need to be culturally Jewish. You need to just surrender your life to Jesus. Um, the other Jews joined Peter, it says, in his hypocrisy. Interesting word. Kind of a Jesus-coined word, too. So that by their hypocrisy, this is the reason people leave church, even Barnabas was led astray. And that's a big deal because Barnabas was one of these guys who was like fighting for the Gentiles. He was, he was like up against everyone. But even he kind of, okay, and he kind of wandered off as well. And then Paul says, verse 14, when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas or Peter in front of them all, you're a Jew. Yet you live like a Gentile and not a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not sinful Gentiles, he says, know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Jesus Christ, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. 
and then verse 17, but if, in seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners, doesn't that mean, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Obviously not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me, who gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Peter was in effect teaching by his actions, not not necessarily verbally, that, that there were two people of God. That's a heresy. He was teaching that. But again, he wasn't, he wasn't doing it in a verbal way. He wasn't getting up and saying, okay, there's two different people of God, uh, Jewish and Gentile. But he, he did this not because his theology changed. His theology was exactly the same. Acts chapter 11, we have a, an example where Peter actually, after preaching to the uh, Gentiles, and he's, people come at him real hard, the Jewish followers, and he like gets in their face and he says, no, we have reason to do this. This is what Christ has called us to This time, it's not because of a theological error, it's social pressure. Um, His sense of self, maybe his reputation in the community, maybe how he wanted to be perceived, it was his pride, it was a sense of self-importance, maybe how his his, his standing in the community, and he capitulates. And all the other people follow him. And, And almost like falling dominoes, everyone else behind him also capitulates all the Jewish followers of Christ, even... even Barnabas, and all of them, Paul says, you're hypocrites. You're absolute hypocrites. So here's the thing. If if you're one of those people who really does struggle with this, man, I got a hard time because there's so many hypocrites in the church. You're late in the game. Paul said that. Paul said some of the leaders of the church are hypocrites. I mean, Peter, for crying out loud, he says, yeah, they acted absolutely hypocritical. And Paul's response was electric. Verse 14 um, because what, what Peter had initiated in a corporate sense, he did it publicly. Um, it's a public scandal. There's public consequence. Paul's, pub, Paul's rebuke is in public as well. And Paul's argument is basically this. Okay, so those of you who are Jewish by birth, you know, that includes Peter as well, um, who even despite your advantage, um, you're still saved by faith. Only by faith. It has nothing to do with the law. So then why would you bind the law to Gentiles? And he says, you know, he calls them sinful Gentiles. He kind of says it with a sense of irony, most commentators think, because of Peter's actions. You know, basically saying, oh, aren't those Gentiles such sinners? Because Peter knew, man, I'm sinning big time. <laughs> you know, so yeah, if you're going to look self-righteously down at them, uh, you know, you've got, you've got, or if you're going to point at them, you've got three fingers pointing back at you, is what he was telling him here. So here's, here's kind of a big point from the passage that I want us to see. Biblical Christianity, I would suggest, biblical Christianity uniquely has the tools to analyze and criticize injustice, but from within the faith. And this is unique. And there are two ideas. Let me give you those two ideas. The first doctrine that allows the church to actually criticize from within is this idea of the the image of God. Um, There's a Sri Lankan scholar Vinath Ramachandra, and he notes that in in, in ancient cultures, the idea that 
there were the gods who their powers were channeled through humans. He said that was rampant. That was all over. Um, so this whole idea of you know humans being you know, having some unique kind of not quite image of God but something close to that. He says that was rampant. The only difference is it was kings, it was priests, it was military captains and rulers. It was not the common folk ever ever in any culture, any religion, any philosophy. It was certainly not the sort of the outcasts or the untouchables in any way. So you go to the ancient Egyptian cultures and. If, they believed their pharaohs were the sons of God or that something similar to the image of God. And so they were due respect. You had to treat them a certain way, but it was only, only them. The ancient Greeks had a similar view. Aristotle himself, the great philosopher, the great mind in the Western tradition, Aristotle said famously that some people are born to be slaves, he said. Now the reason he said this is because he believed that basically what gave human dignity was your capacities. And in Greek thought, the best capacity is the reason. So to the degree that you've got a really sharp, like honed mind, and you're a good thinker, and you're a critical thinker, you have dignity, you have human worth and value. And so you have you know, rights in that sense. To the degree that you don't, well, you were just born to be a slave. That's okay. No one's, it's not a bad thing. That's just you know, the way of, of nature. If you go to India... You're probably quite familiar with the caste system, which has drawn very clear lines on who has respect, who has value, and who has, who has worth. In fact, Mother Teresa, interestingly, when, when she first came to Calcutta, many Hindu and Indian scholars debated on whether she was doing a good thing. Because, see, was she interfering with people's karma? Because if they didn't pay off their karma in this life, they will have a worse New life when they're reborn in the next. So is she interfering with their karma? Great. There is no culture, there is no religion which has ever said all people have equal value, even in the modern, secular, post-enlightenment West. We embrace this idea that we are accidental collocations of atoms, not, not creations, so we're, we're, we're forced to, to face the implication that ultimately there is no good reason to treat human beings as having dignity. Listen to Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes, Jr. Chief Justice said, um, said it well when he wrote these words. When one thinks coldly, and he would have embraced this sort of post-enlightenment secular understanding of life. When one thinks coldly, I see no reason for attributing to man a significance different in kind from that which belongs to a baboon or a grain of sand. What he's saying is if we simply are random collocations of atoms, the concept of imbuing some sort of dignity, some value, which a state or a group can't take away or whatever, he said, we don't have any grounding for that. We don't have any reason for that. And he was quite right. Now contrast that. For a second, contrast all of that because we're talking about justice. We're talking about the poor. We're talking about what, what about you know, the people who, who are marginalized? What about those people? Is it true that, that Christianity, as Mark said, is sort of the opiate of the people? Ah, it doesn't care about them. It doesn't empower them. It's, it's not good for that. Which, which understanding of humanity is more empowering to the oppressed, to the poor, to the broken, to the people who, who can't fix their own lives? C.S. Lewis says it this way. There are no ordinary people. This is according to a biblical worldview because of the image of God. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Isn't that interesting? A mere mortal is 
you're dead and there's an end. You've never talked to, you've never had a conversation with a mere mortal. And he goes on to say um, that every single person you've talked to is, is this immortal being. He says um, nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as that of the life of a gnat. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. (laughs) Wow. Immortal beings, he says. The teaching of the image of God in in all humanity was, in the ancient world, and I would suggest it is still an absolutely radical idea within world history. And there's nothing quite like it. The Bible teaches the, the sacredness, that, that, that the sacredness rather of God has, has in some way been imparted to you so that every, every human life reflects a sacredness there also. Every human being has a, has a dignity. How many of you guys know, um, oh, I'll come back to that. How many of you know what this picture is? Anyone? No one? Mount Vernon. Okay. This is Mount Vernon. It's in Virginia. Now, um, Nicholas Walterstorff uh, gives a good example of, okay, what's this whole image of God thing and having more value? To it? And he uses, this, he uses this example, and I think it's beautiful. I love it. He says, imagine a foreigner comes to the United States. Okay? A foreigner comes to the United States, and they know absolutely nothing about United States history. They have no concept at all. And they're, they're quite puzzled. When, when they find out that, that Mount Vernon Estate, this area in Virginia, is actually preserved as a national monument. And it's treated as this, as this object of great value, of great worth. And see, they would be puzzled because there are a lot more beautiful, more grand architecturally designed uh, plantation homes in Virginia. So why this one? There are, there are much more gorgeous things. You made this one of your national monuments. How would we respond? What would you say? It's because this, this home was the home of George Washington, we would say. You would say, this, this is the founder of our country. This is why, in fact, last year there was a, a $600,000 rehabilitation to one room in particular. And, they, and they, there are all these scholars who thought that this one room, it's the largest room in the house. George Washington called it the new room. He had this kind of new idea of what homes would be like. And, and, um, and everyone thought it was a dining room. And now scholars are saying it wasn't a dining room at all. It was like what we think of as a great room. And so they said that's what it was. And so they've got art up there. And you can stand in there and just you know, see the beauty of this room. But it's not the most beautiful Virginia plantation that there is. It's nice. See, the, the, the internal merits of the house and the quality of the house are irrelevant. Completely irrelevant. Then what makes this a national treasure? What makes it a national monument? What, what makes it, makes people raise private funds of $600,000 to do something to one room? It's because we treasure the owner that we honor the house. See, when God put his image in you, the image of God, we become beings of infinite worth, inestimable value. And no matter how broken you find one of those, no matter how messed up, no matter how sinful, no matter how many, or no matter how self-harming, it is this immortal being who bears the image of God. 
That's why we study the human person. We say this is not just a random collocation of atoms. This is something unique. It's something gorgeous. Something totally different. Let me go back to this second one here. Second point. Second doctrine is justification by grace alone. Now, that's a big word, justification. If you've been around the church word for a while, justification is kind of like a big theological word that you're like, yeah, I know that's an important Bible word, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know what it means. Justification, what is, what is the doctrine? Well, oftentimes we'll say, well, it means forgiveness. It means God's, you know, God forgives us of our sins. Yes, absolutely it means that. And that's an extremely important thing. Um, but it's so much more than that. Um, forgiveness says, or forgiveness is, is the absence of something, okay? Forgiveness is the absence of guilt. Okay? Justification is the presence of something. Forgiveness is the absence of something, the absence of guilt. But justification is the presence of something, and that's Jesus' goodness for me. Forgiveness says, okay, you can go. Justification says, you can come here. Do you get the difference between those two? Justification is, is, is this huge thing. There was this, um, how many of you guys know the show? It's a TV show called uh, NCIS. Have you ever heard of this before? It's like, a, it's like a detective. It's, you know, it's like a cops and robber movie kind of thing or show. In one of the early um, seasons, early episodes of NCIS, the, the, there was a storyline where there's this old guy. He's like 80-some years old, broken down, little feeble guy he's just looks like he's kind of on death's door sort of thing and he lives in this crummy little apartment well he's he's been accused of a crime in the past he was a um he fought in world war ii he was a veteran of world war ii and he's he was being accused of a crime in the past and he was navy and so these these navy military police come these big huge guys they're like twice his size and they show up and they're they're going to take him away. They're going to arrest him. And you, there's the Navy lawyer there, and and they're just coming up to like you know they've read you know this is what you're charged with, and they're coming up to like grab him like this. And and as they start to do it, his jacket kind of gets pulled back, and he's got a Congressional Medal of Honor on his chest. And the guys just snap to attention right there, and they and they salute. And at that moment, nothing's changed about this little guy. He's still this broken. Messed up, feeble, who knows? We're not even sure about the, the claims of what he had done. But there was something about the metal on his chest that changed it. They, they, they had to salute it. They had to snap to attention. Whether they wanted to or not, the whole thing, they absolutely had to. See, th- this, is, this is what it means to be justified, is that you have the medals of Christ covering you. That's why I said it's, it's not the absence of guilt. Only, it's the presence of something. Of You are covered in Christ's medals. And the whole universe has to salute you. That's human dignity. That's image of God. But not only that, it's redeemed. It's justified image of God. That's the doctrine of justification by Jesus' death. You are covered in his medals. Miroslav uh, Wolf is a... Uh, uh, a philosopher, or a theologian at an Ivy League school, and um, let me just read a quote for you from from him. It's a, it's a little longer, but I think I think it'll be meaningful as we think of this whole idea of what is really best for the just, what's really best or just for the poor, for the oppressed. Um, he he writes he writes this as he's talking about. Um, he says, um, "Imagine that you have no job." No money. 
You live cut off from the rest of society in the world, ruled by poverty and violence. Your skin is the wrong color, and you have no hope that any of this will change. Around you is a society governed by the iron law of achievement. Its gilded goods are flaunted before your eyes on TV screens. In a thousand ways, society tells you every day that you are worthless because you have no achievement. You are a failure, and you know that you will continue to be a failure because there is no way to achieve tomorrow what you have not managed to achieve today. Your dignity is shattered, and your soul is enveloped in darkness and despair. But the gospel... But the gospel tells you that you are not defined by outside forces. It tells you that you, that you count even more, that you are loved unconditionally and infinitely, irrespective of anything you have achieved or failed to achieve. Imagine now this gospel not simply proclaimed, but embodied in a community, justified by sheer grace. It seeks to justify by grace those declared unjust by society's implacable law of achievement. Imagine further that this community determined to infuse the wider culture, along with its political and economic institutions, with a message that it seeks to embody and proclaim. This is justification, Wolf ends by saying, this is justification by grace, proclaimed and practiced. And he ends by asking a question, is it a dead doctrine? Is it, a, is it an impractical doctrine that theologians, he said, hardly. <laughs> and before that, he went on to say, as he's worked with churches in, in, in uh, inner city areas, he said, I, these, these pastors have told him, they said, the doctrine of justification has an infinite ability to absolutely rid inner cities of the blight and the destruction that's there. And he was astounded by that. But then he realized, but think about what the doctrine of justification tells the person who cannot achieve for themselves, who will not be able to pull themselves up, up by their own bootstraps in some way let me end by reading this verse here james chapter 1 verse 9 james chapter 1 verse 9 this is what i think this is the power of the gospel that it speaks to both the rich and the poor james says this he says believers in humble circumstances now listen to this believers in humble circumstances this is the poor ought to take pride in their high position but the rich should take pride in their low position since they will pass away like the wild flower now he's not saying rich is bad poor is good because earlier in the gospel earlier in this book he talks about the rich and the poor who are all a part of one community what he's saying is if if you're rich you should ponder about the reality of how broken and sinful you are inside. You know why? Because all day long, you get accolades. If you're really successful in life, if you're well off, if you're an achiever, if you're beautiful, if you're one of the beautiful people, as Marilyn Manson says, you get, you get applauded all day long. And so here's your temptation. You're, gonna, you're not going to be, you know, Jesus talks about blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You're going to kind of think you're middle class in spirit. Yeah, I got some problems. No, no, no. He says, think about how absolutely broken you are. When you come across someone who's absolutely destitute and homeless, the reason why you'll act differently to them is because you realize that's how I am inwardly. I, had, I don't deserve any of this. It's sheer grace. That's the gospel. And then he says, to those who, who, who are lowly, he said, here's what I want you to ponder. I want you to ponder the fact that, that the Lord of the universe valued you so much that he laid down all of his riches. He became poor. He became a nobody. 
He was treated unjust and unfairly so that you could have all of his medals. Ponder about that. Not just because that's a good thought, because that completely changes how, if there was a society, a group, a community, like it completely changes how they interact with each other. The gospel completely does that. And what I want to do right now, just in our last few minutes here, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward, pass out the elements of communion, because these elements speak to this very reality right here. Here's, here's what communion should tell you every time you take it. You are so broken and sinful and more messed up than you possibly could imagine. That's why Jesus had to come pay this radical price. But you are more loved and accepted and valued incalculably in Jesus than you ever dared hope. If you're prideful, it will knock you to your knees. If you're on the ground, it will lift your head.